Well, last week I explained why I think you can believe the biblical account about Jesus. And uh, the account we're exploring these four months together is the Gospel of Mark. And as he begins his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, Mark puts forth four witnesses as to who Jesus is. There's his own witness. There's the witness of the Old Testament. And there's also then the witness of John the baptizer. The final witness that Mark gives us as to the identity of Jesus uh, as he begins his public ministry is the witness of God himself, of the eternal Father giving witness to the eternal Son who came in the flesh. So if you have your Bibles, I want to go to Mark chapter 1, where we'll pick up this morning. And I'm going to start reading at verse 9, if you would just follow along. Mark chapter 1 and verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. There are three aspects about this giving of the Spirit that I really want you to note this morning. Uh, the first is a statement of God's possession. Here at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, God the Father pronounces his regard for his Son. He says, this is my Son. It's a statement of possession. That's what he's establishing regarding this Jesus. Secondly, it's a sign of God's pleasure. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God took pleasure in his Son. He was a delight to his father. And lastly, there's a supply of God's uh, power. What follows in the text after the baptism? The temptation. And immediately after his baptism, Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, and there he faces the tempter, the devil himself. And he was victorious. In, in light of the onslaught by the evil one, Jesus outlasted him. Now, I want you to see something absolutely extraordinary by way of application. Because when we come to faith in Christ, God does an amazing thing. He gives his Holy Spirit to us. And God the Spirit invades our lives and takes up residence within us. So look at the parallels. First, there's a statement of God's possession. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. You either belong to God or you don't. There's no halfway point here. There's no partial possession when it comes to your standing before God. So if you've trusted in Christ, you are his. You are his. You belong to him. Secondly, there's the sign of God's pleasure. This should knock your socks off. This comes from 1 John chapter 3. 
John writes, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Every one of us wants to know, am I acceptable? And God says, I accept you. I delight in you as my child. You know, there's a sticker you'll often find on used cars that says, warranty as is. Every one of us comes to God that way with a sticker that says, as is. And God accepts us in Christ. See, he already knows every defect. There's no chance that somewhere down the road, two weeks, two months, two years, God's going to discover a defect in you, and then he's going to discard you along the way. He already knows you. He already knows everything about you, because you come to him as is. Finally, there's a supply of God's power. Before Jesus returned to his father after the resurrection, he said to his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You do not face the challenges of life or the pressures of life or the disappointments of life alone. God, with his power of the Holy Spirit, is beside you and is within you if you've trusted in Christ. Think about how God's giving of the Spirit addresses the most basic needs that human beings have. First is the need to belong, a sense of belonging. And God says to you, you are mine. You belong to me. And when you believe in Christ, God adopts you into his family. John the Apostle declares this truth in the first chapter of his gospel account when he says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The need to belong. Second, there's the need to be loved. To be affirmed, every human being delighted, desires to be loved. God says, you are my beloved child. I am pleased with you in Christ. Of this love, Paul writes in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did Paul leave anything out? Would you come see me after this morning if you see anything that Paul left out there? Nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And then there's the need for a power source to live rightly. God says, I've given you my spirit. And he will empower you, empower you to make right choices, to live rightly. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room before his betrayal and death, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so Mark throws out this last witness, 
the testimony of God the Father about his only son. Now, after presenting these four witnesses to the identity of Jesus, Mark begins now to demonstrate the authority of Jesus displayed in his life and ministry. And that's going to be a theme that's going to carry all the way through this gospel account. The movie Ghostbusters, by the way, it was just on last night, um, just saying, uh, was a humorous attempt to show how, how a bunch of ghosts, demonic beings, could wreak havoc on a city until three guys led by Bill Murray could defeat them with their magic weapons. Though enjoyable as a piece of fiction, it was just that, fiction. But in the real world, demons do exist. Satan, the prince of demons, does exist. And humans have neither the authority nor the power to defeat them. But there is one who does. And the gospel writer Mark now takes us behind the curtain of the physical realm into this realm of the spiritual. And he demonstrates the authority that Jesus of Nazareth has over the devil and his demons. Jesus comes to the Jordan River where John is baptizing. And in an act of submission, he is baptized by John, signifying the beginning of his public ministry. And God speaks from heaven, and he declares his great pleasure in his beloved son. Following his baptism, Mark says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. The word drove in the ESV a translation is a good one. The Greek word is ekbalo, which literally means to throw or to cast out. Uh, it means to throw out forcibly. There, there, there's something that's happening, and the timing here is so significant because it's coming right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. A ministry that has as its core mission a predetermined rendezvous with a cross where Jesus will be the sin-bearer of all. Jesus faces the devil himself, person to person, ultimate one-on-one. -on -one. Matthew and Luke, in their gospel accounts, record three specific temptations that Jesus encounters. Whereas in Mark and in Luke's accounts, it seems to indicate that Jesus was tempted through this whole period of time. Now, it's possible that the reason why those three particular temptations are mentioned in two of the gospel accounts is because it shows that Jesus was tempted in every broad area as we are. Um, why do I say that? Well, the Apostle John seems to indicate in his first letter um, what these categories are. And so he writes, Do not love the world nor the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And now Jesus is tempted in each of these three areas. Uh, the old language uses the word lust, which simply means desires, the lust of the flesh, of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. So Jesus now comes in and faces the devil with each of these three categories. He's been fasting for 40 days. 
that has to take a toll physically. I can only imagine the, the weakness physically that Jesus must have felt at the end of that time. Please don't forget that the Messiah, though divine in nature, is also fully human. Hunger was real to him. And so the devil comes and says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Satan then takes Jesus into Jerusalem and he stands with him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Finally, Jesus is taken by Satan to a high mountain and he's shown all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory. And Satan says to them, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now you think about that, that's a powerful temptation. Um, after all, Jesus as Messiah in the line of David had been promised the Davidic kingdom that he would sit on David's throne and rule there forever. But what Satan is doing is he's offering Jesus that goal without suffering. He says, you can have your kingdom at no cost. But of course, there would be a cost, a hidden cost. It would be disobedience. He could not and would not be the sin bearer of the world. And the world would continue in sin. It would continue under the judgment of God with no possible out, no solution, no redemption. And as we see throughout the gospel account, Satan is constantly trying to derail Jesus' mission. The central reason for which he came, which was a mission to bring a redemption through the cross, through his death. And what's the central issue behind all of these temptations? It's this, authority. It's the issue of authority. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, it's a challenge to his deity and to the authority that he possessed because of who he was. Now, lest you think that this was like a final exam, uh, you know, all temptations now behind him, look at this from Luke's comment. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Can you think of one of those prime times? How about Gethsemane? when he could have passed on it all. But Jesus prevailed through the temptations over the devil. How did he do it? What was the key to his success? Really, it's two things. First of all, it was the Spirit of God. Jesus was totally dependent on the Spirit. And you've got to remember, he faces the tempter in his humanity here. In his human nature, he encountered the devil the enemy, and he resisted temptations in his humanity. Victory was gained by dependence upon the Holy Spirit. You see, he still had a choice that he had to make when those temptations came to him. The second thing was the Word of God. In each case with the temptation as recorded in Scripture, Jesus answered by quoting God's Word. He responds to Satan each time, It is written quoting from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. If you and I have, hope to have any chance to withstand temptation, we must depend on the Spirit 
And we must know God's word to bring to bear against those temptations. We must know the mind and the will of God, and that only comes through the scripture. Now, here's the significance to all of this. Very, to me, it's very simple. Jesus understands. He understands. He understands the pressures you feel in temptation. He's been there. Look at this. It comes from a, a point made by the writer of the book of Hebrews. We write, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Then in chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you're being assaulted by temptation, you might be tempted to think, God, you just don't understand. Oh, yes, he does understand. Jesus' temptations were real. And in many respects, far beyond anything that you or I will ever experience. But he stood fast. Depending on the word of God, the spirit of God, he faced the tempter, he did not give up, he did not give in. And so depending on the power of God, he made the right choices. Nowhere in our spiritual lives is this more true than in facing temptation. Well, Mark continues in his gospel account with Jesus now proclaiming the beginning of his ministry. Look at verse 14 in John, or Mark chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The word time there is not chronologic time, it's strategic time. It's opportune time, it's, it's decisive time, it's God-ordained time. The next display of Jesus' authority is in calling the first disciples to himself. We go on in the text, verse 16. Mark writes, passing along the Sea of Galilee, saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their necks. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. 
It's striking in Mark's account of the immediacy of their response. He says immediately they left. Now we know from John's account that they had been exposed to Jesus and his teaching prior to this occasion. But now Jesus calls them to something unique. You know, what are they responding to? It's very simple. Follow me. Jesus calls them to a relationship of discipleship. Jesus has been preaching. No doubt they've heard him speak. There's, there's, there's some general knowledge, some familiarity with him. Now listen, this is really important. They were responding to a person first, not a task. Do you notice that? The task was yet future. It was, I will make you become fishers of men. Here's the significance. Jesus calls us first to himself and then to the task. It's not either or, it's both and. But the key is the order. It's the priority. Jesus calls us to follow him. That's the essence of discipleship. That's the core of following him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor executed by special order of Himmler on April 9, 1945, at the concentration camp at Flossenburg, a few days before it was liberated by the Allies. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he wrote this, Discipleship means adherence to Christ, and because Christ is the object of that adherence, it must take the form of discipleship. With an abstract idea, it is possible to enter into a relation of formal knowledge, to become enthusiastic about it, and perhaps even to put it into practice. But it can never be followed in personal obedience. Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. And Jesus called his disciples in the midst of ordinary life. They were ordinary men doing ordinary work, and Jesus called them to become his followers. Today, Jesus meets us where we are. And he calls to us in the office, on the job, in the home, and he says, be my follower, be my disciple. Or in the words of Ray Vanderlyn, Jesus says, come and be like me. That's discipleship. Well, Mark doesn't stop there. He goes on to show us Jesus' authority over spirits. Look at verse 21 in Mark 1. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. 
and at once his fame spread throughout, everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. So Jesus comes to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the commercial hub of Jesus' fishing ex- business. It's an important city. Uh, it, it was a custom station. Uh, it's the residence of a high official of the king. It's occupied by a detachment of Roman soldiers led by a centurion. By the way, we know from the gospel account this centurion was a God-fearer. He actually built the Jews their synagogue there. And it was his servant who Jesus healed. But situated on the north-northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum would become the basis of the, the, the place where Jesus worked out of in this Galilean ministry. And the first thing we note is the authority of his teaching. Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he used a Jewish custom which allowed visiting recognized itinerant preachers the opportunity to then preach using the law and the Old Testament prophets. But there's a significant difference in his teaching. It has to do with authority. The scribes that are mentioned here were those men who were the recognized teacher of the law. They, they were professionally trained uh, to interpret the law and to expound on the law. But the interesting thing is that in their teaching, they always appealed to someone else's authority, that of one of the great teachers of Israel. And so they would always say, as Hillel has said, or as Gamaliel has said. But Jesus doesn't do that. He appeals to his own authority. He offers nothing else because his authority came directly from his father. In fact, he will later say this, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own initiative. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. And Jesus commanded the evil spirit to depart, and immediately he came out. The spirit, they recognize and acknowledge the authority of Jesus over them. They're powerless before him. Here's the significance, I think, that Mark wants us to see. Jesus Christ is Lord of all, seen and unseen. There is not anything over which he does not have authority. And even the people of Capernaum recognized and understood this truth. And their response to what they'd seen, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Wow. You see, if we are serious in our relationship with God, then then we choose to submit to his authority, to his rule in our life. And only then do we experience the life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus. So let me wrap it up this morning. Mark sets out a journey, uh, a journey of rediscovering Jesus. And he begins with the declaration that this Jesus is unique. He's God in the flesh, the divine one. And why, why is that important to you this morning? Well, it's very simple, I think. Jesus wants to rule in your life. He wants to be Lord over you. Uh, What gives him the authority to make such a demand? Pretty simple. He's God. He has every right. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He has every right 
to demand such a thing because of who he is. But listen, he woos you to this choice by his sacrificial love. That's how he draws us. It's his kindness towards us, his love for us that draws us to then say, God, I put you first in my life. This Jesus who asks you to believe in him has power and authority over all things. He asks you to trust him for everything in your life, whether you understand it or not, in whatever circumstances you find yourself. See, he wants you not only to believe in him, he wants you to be his disciple. And so he says to you, come and be like me. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that your word does not leave us to wonder either who Jesus is or what he wants of us and in us. We're so grateful that when we put our trust in you, that you give us your Holy Spirit, that you yourself and the power of the third person of the Trinity comes to dwell in us, to live within us, to rule in our hearts, to direct us, to empower us to make right choices, to withstand temptation, whatever it might be. We thank you that you love us so much that you would do that. May the fact and reality of your love capture us in our thinking this week, that we would choose to live in a way that pleases you, not in some uh, attempt to get your love and grace, but because we do experience your love and grace. Would you be pleased to live in us this week in a way, as Jesus said, that our light shines before others, that they may see our lives, our good works, and may glorify our Father who is in heaven. And so I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.